IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about MGMT and The Last Dinner Party. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's going to play Mal Evans in the Ringo Starr biopic, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? You see, I don't know who Mal Evans is, so you've already justified the decision well, to make a Ringo biopic. Mal Evans was their roadie, longtime roadie, and you can see him in uh, Get Back. He oh. plays the uh, uh, the anvil in Maxville's <laughs> uh, Silver Hammer, and... Uh, he, uh, a few years later, died via suicide by cop. <laughs> Indicast, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> I bet you weren't expecting that twist ending. He's like a very jolly guy, and he has the saddest death of all time. Um, yes, for those who don't know, it was announced this week that Sam Mendes, the Academy Award winning director of American Beauty in 1917, Revolutionary Road, a bunch of films... He is going to make four authorized biopics of each member of the Beatles. A Paul McCartney movie, a John Lennon movie, a George Harrison movie, and a Ringo Starr movie. Uh, you know, Ian, I've, I've said on many occasions that there's no such thing as too much Beatles content for me. Like, I will, I will slop up any documentary book that you throw at me. Um... This might be too much Beatles content. I think I might have finally reached the threshold here. I'm not sure how this is going to work. Four biopics. Apparently they're interconnected. This is going to be like the Lord of the Rings of rock movies, I guess. Um, do you have any thoughts on this? What do you think? Are you excited for this? You're not as big of a Beatles fan as I am. So I'm guessing you're not, but I'm curious for your thoughts. Yeah, I'm just going to wait till they all drop and play them all at the same time, Zyreka style, and get get back out of it. Um, and I think the Lord of the Rings of the Rock biopic is like the song remains the same. That, that's like kind of what this is doing, right? Where everyone's well, got Well, Lord of the Rings of meaning thing. there's like uh, three movies, you know, okay. and they're all like three hours long. I mean, <laughs> I, so, that, so that's what I, I see this as being. I mean, I was thinking about this, and I actually think this would be more interesting if... The movies focused on specific moments in their post-Beatles lives. Like, you could make a prison movie about <laughs> about Paul McCartney, the time that he was busted in Japan for pot possession, and he was in jail, I think, for seven days. Like, you could make a movie about that. It could be like Midnight Express, but it's about <laughs> Paul McCartney. Or 25th Hour or something like that. Yeah, it'd be amazing. Or, you know, a buddy comedy about John Lennon and Harry Nielsen hanging out in LA in like 1974 and just getting like drunk every day. Like that could be a great movie <laughs> or like a that. traveling a movie about George Harrison getting the traveling Wilburys together. Like that would be an amazing movie or Ringo Starr uh, making the movie caveman in 1981. Like you could do like, those would be cool movies. Um, I'm not sure how this is going to work thinking that it's going to be focusing on the Beatles part of their lives. I, I I just feel like by the Ringo movie, are even like the hardcore Beatles fanatics going to be running out of gas at that point? 
Yeah, I think that, well, uh, my, my opinion of this movie was greatly influenced by seeing Sam Mendez's Wikipedia photo. And I was expe- I was not expecting him to look like that. He looks like the sort of guy who, you include him in like a Beatles documentary about a guy who like stole all their publishing rights. Or he just looks like a guy who's going to rip them off. Not very rock and roll looking is what you're no. saying. He looks kind of like a, like a nerdy guy a little bit. Yeah, like a nerdy guy wearing a scarf thinking he's rock and roll. Um, yeah, just the guy who like gets put into the Beatles camp and thinks he's down. Like sort of like the, the therapist in uh, Some Kind of Monster. Like that, that's, he's got that sort of vibe to him. But yeah, also, like you mentioned, Maxwell Silver Hammer. I mean, can any work of like quasi-fiction about the Beatles match the pathos of the other three members of the Beatles watching Paul make that song and wanting to murder him? We could get like a Rashomon-style thing about that specific moment. But, I mean, do you think these are actually going to happen? Well, I mean, apparently the Beatles gave, uh, they're authorizing these films, they're giving... Uh, rights to their music for these films. So, I mean, I feel like, you know, it's so rare for them to sanction uh, films or like to, to allow their to allow their music to be used uh, in other people's movies. So that makes me think it's going to happen. I do wonder if this will be modified into like a Apple TV, like movie series type thing. I mean, it feels like, oh, you, like, a TV show in a way hmm. more than a series of movies, but are they all going to come out at the same time? You know, like you would, if it was on Apple TV, you're just going to drop them. That makes sense to me rather than, Oh, the John Lennon movie comes out and then the McCartney movie comes out like a year later. I just feel like the juice for that is not going to hang in. But, you know, I, I was thinking about rock biopics in general and, you know, this is a well-worn, uh, observation but it's nonetheless true that after walk hard came out it seems like making a biopic about a musician just became 10 times harder not that it has prevented people from making biopics if anything more biopics about musicians are being made all the time i mean the bob marley movie that just came out one love which judging by the trailer looked terrible but apparently (laughs) it's like it's okay like i haven't seen it that topped the box office last week. Huh. Um, and, you know, it's not like it's super competitive this time of the year, but still, like, people came out to see the Bob Marley biopic. Uh, so there's obviously an audience for this kind of movie. Do you have, like, a favorite biopic? I mean, there aren't that many good ones. It's kind of hard to think of, like, a really good movie about a musician. But Do any come to mind for you? I mean, I haven't seen One Love yet, so I can't say whether that tops the rank. But yeah, (laughs) biopics are sort of like UK grime music where it's like the the parodies are like kind of better than the real thing. But the first one that comes to mind is 24-Hour Party People, even though I'm not Ah. exactly sure that counts. Um, I think it does. Okay, yeah, because I'm I'm thinking it benefits from the fact that it was made in like the mid-2000s rather than like the current day where biopics are expected to like uh, you know, vie for Oscar nominations. And it focused on Tony Wilson more so than like Ian Curtis or really any, like it was more of an ensemble cast, which I think kind of spread things out. And also any movie that like heavily features the Happy Mondays is can't take itself too seriously. Like one fun fact I learned about Tony Wilson is that when he died, he had uh, Bob's Your Uncle 
uh, the Happy Monday song playing at his funeral, which if you know anything about Bob's your uncle, that's like not a very uh, elegic song. But, um, you know, I think that with biopics, the best we can really do is unintentional comedy, which... I mean, The Doors is, like, the gold standard for that. Or, oh, yeah. Or, like, you know, the Hulu series about Motley Crue, where I think we talked about this, where, like, Tommy Lee gets booted from, like, Studio A because Third Eye Blind is there. They have to cast an entire fictional Third Eye Blind, which is awesome. That's the Pam and Tommy oh, uh, right. one, which I guess you could count as a musician biopic because it was also the Netflix movie about Motley Crue, which was The Dirt. With Machine Gun Kelly, right? Yeah, Machine Gun Kelly playing Tommy Lee, which wasn't very good, but it was entertaining. I mean, I think you can make a case that the trashier musician biopics made for TV are, in a way, more entertaining. Because, like you're saying, in a way, they're almost um, not trying to be great. Mm -hmm. You know, like the more self-serious biopics, I think, sometimes all just because... You know, you see Rami Malek and this terrible, uh, you know, these terrible prosthetic teeth, and you just can't take it seriously, even though, you know, there's tens of millions of dollars being spent on that film. Like, I think about the movies that were on VH1 mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. Like, there was a, a biopic about Def Leppard called, called Hysteria, which you can see on YouTube if you've never seen it. Anthony Michael Hall as Mutt Lang. <laughs> Just a just a great performance uh, from Anthony Michael Hall. There's also another Beatles movie that came out in the early 2000s called Two of Us, which is about John Lennon and Paul McCartney hanging out in New York in 1976 with uh, Jared Harris of Mad Men, uh, Lane Price playing John Lennon, and Aidan Quinn of many films. Desperately Seeking Susan. Maybe you know that one. He plays Paul McCartney. That movie's directed by Michael Lindsay Hogue, who's actually in Get Back, because he directed Let It Be, the original documentary about the making of that record. So I like those movies. Again, just because they're TV movies, they're kind of campy, and they're just fun to watch. I mean, I've seen both of those movies at least three times. Uh, Very good movies. I also really like... This is another movie that, like, it was never officially released, but you can see it on YouTube. Uh, it's Todd Haynes' first movie, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. I, are you familiar with this movie? Yeah, that one, like, because May, December was probably my favorite movie of last year. And, you know, with the Barbie conversation happening, um, it, it, like, can you find this movie right now? Like, I, I think it's on YouTube, maybe, like, or you got to get a VPN or some shit. No, you you can look it up on YouTube. It's a very grainy uh, version of it, but you can see it. That's how I saw it. It's about an hour long, and it's a uh, it's a movie about Karen Carpenter of the Carpenters, and everyone in the movie is a doll. So it's all these Barbie dolls that are acting out Karen Carpenter's life. And the reason why it's unavailable is that Richard Carpenter, who's Karen Carpenter's brother and the other member of the Carpenters, uh, blocked the movie because... Todd Haynes used all this Carpenter's music without permission. I mean, I think he was still in film school when he made this movie. or I mean, it was mm-hmm. very early in his career. Um, but it's a great movie. It's actually, you know, you, you look at it, you, you, you hear the concept of it, you might think, oh, this is like a jokey film, but it's actually very moving, and he, he plays it straight. And, you know, Todd Haynes does this sort of thing uh, where he's uh, sort of subverting film forms and doing things unexpected that have 
emotional resonance that might not have been apparent when you first started watching the movie. I mean, he also made I'm Not There, the Bob Dylan movie, and Velvet Goldmine, which is basically a movie about David Bowie and Lou Reed, uh, even though they have different names in the <laughs> film. And those movies are good, too, but if you haven't seen Superstar, look it up on YouTube. It's a really good movie. So those are good biopics. So yeah, Superstar, Hysteria, The Def Leppard Story, and Two of Us. I liked Elvis well enough. You know, like, I liked Elvis too, actually. Yeah, yeah, because it's it, it was like so far fetched out of reality that you kind of had to rock with it. You know, like um, and also I think uh, the uh, Karen Carpenter movie made by uh, uh, Todd Haynes was banned because like Barbie wasn't particularly pleased with you know being heavily utilized in a movie where someone like dies of like complications of anorexia nervosa. Yeah. But, yeah, I yeah, think you just got you got to get like trashy, like yeah, super serious. Like, you, there's just no real way to win it. Um, and we aren't even going to talk about how I feel about Maestro. So, oh, did you not like Maestro? It was so like it. It was so obviously like going for an Oscar. Like it just strained under the ambition of like that. I think if like I, I think what, what what came across for me, it's like I never really got the sense of like. Hey, wait a minute! Like, why was Leonard Bernstein so important to begin with? It's um, I think it spent too much time like going over the kind of boring part. Like, it, it was weird that like I would wanted to see more about the music as opposed to like you know his relationship with Carrie Mulligan. You know? Yeah, but what about sixty-five-year-old Leonard Bernstein dancing to Tears for Fears in a disco? Well, that I mean, fucking ruled. <laughs> that was amazing. You know, I, I like Maestro. I didn't love it. I see the flaws in it. I'm a Bradley Cooper fan. I'm going to say I'm coming out. I'm coming out of the closet here as a Bradley Cooper fan. I I know I should be irritated by him, but I think he's a really good actor. I think he's a good filmmaker. Speaking of great biopics, A Star is Born, great biopic about Jackson Maine, one of the <laughs> great rock stars of the last 20 years, RIP Jackson Maine. Uh I loved A Star Is Born. I thought that, I thought that movie was great, but I'm you know people are just piling on Bradley Cooper. It's like all these people want to win Oscars. Why is he the only one getting attacked for that? Is he any more sort of uh, craven about this than like anyone else out here campaigning to win the award? I don't know. I I, I feel like B Coops. You get a bad rap. <laughs> yeah. I'm defending you, B Coops. I just think the whole, like the Simpsons, the whole, the whole thing smacks of effort, man. Coop, you're, you're <laughs> cool with me, man. You're cool with me, Jackson, Maine. You did, you did, uh, you paid, you paid proper respect to one of my favorite rock stars over the last 20 years. Um, so that was like a movie cast there. We didn't announce, that was like a surprise movie cast. I didn't expect us to delve that deep into cinema at the top of this episode, but I'm glad we did. That yeah, was we, fun. We got, we got range. People, uh, people need we to do. recognize. We got with sports, movies. I mean, oh, yeah. there, there's no limit to what we can cover here. We could talk movies. We could talk sports, talk music, t- go back to sports, some more <laughs> movies, go to music. Maybe and like sports. once every year do a book cast. Yeah, every once, yeah, every once in a while. Um, let's talk about MGMT. They have a new album out today. It's called Loss of Life. And this is, I believe, their fifth album. Sounds right. Am I right? Yeah, that that, that sounds right. Because you got Oracular Spectacular. You have Congratulations, Self-Titled. The, uh, uh, what's the record that came out in 20? Little Dark Age. Really good record. That was 18, I think. That was 18. 
six years later, we got loss of life, uh, which just makes me realize I have to determine if they pass the five album test. Maybe I'll figure that out by the end of this episode. The self-titled record, I think, is the wild card in that run. Um, before we talk about the record, I'm curious about your relationship with MGMT because I've written about MGMT many times in the past. I, I profiled them in 2018 when Little Dark Age came out. I actually like went to New York. We hung out in a bistro there. And then I went to go watch them rehearse, which was very exciting. And then I've written about Congratulations, I think more than once. It, it's funny, with my editor, Phil, I once pitched him a think piece about Congratulations. And he slacked me back and he's like, you know, you wrote about this album like a year ago. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I forgot. Apparently I'm just like constantly wanting to think piece about Congratulations. But it is one of my favorite albums, I think. Of the last 15 years or so. Certainly one of my favorite, like, second albums uh, that, that has ever been made. Uh, certainly in the 21st century. Uh, just a fascinating period for them. Like, when they were just living high on the hog from the success of their first record. Seems like they were doing a lot of drugs, spending a lot of money, being very self-indulgent. Made this crazy record with, like, a cartoon. What is it? I think it's a bear? Uh, it's like a, a fox. It's like very Sonic the Hedgehog. That's uh, it. Slash yeah. tails, you know. Cartoon fox like surfing on the cover. Uh, just, just an amazing decision to make that the cover of that record. So anyway, I've thought a lot about this band. They're one of my favorite bands of the blog rock era, and I, I want to talk about that uh, in this conversation as well. But what's your experience with this band? Are you a fan of them? They're such a fascinating blind spot for me because there's absolutely really? no, there's no reason I shouldn't be very up to speed on what they've done because you know it's not like the, I was above listening to MGMT in 2008. I mean, they I feel like they were like halfway between what Vampire Weekend and Passion Pit were doing at the time, which are bands I very much listened to. But would you believe that the only album I can guarantee, oh, besides the new one, because, you know, I, I prepare for the pod, and this is the first MGMT album of the IndieCast era. Uh, but prior to that, <laughs> the, right. o- the only one I've listened to as a whole was the self-title because I reviewed it in 2013. What? Yeah. They wait, were- wait, what? You never listened to, like, Oracular Spectacular or Congratulations? Never as a whole. Like, I, wow. I always kind of felt like it it, it was sort of like, I don't know, I always felt like Oracular Spectacular was sort of like the hot fuss of its time where the singles were like so omnipresent and I never heard a single person vouch for the deep cut. So you could figure, yeah, I get it. And, you know, I think congratulations with its cover. I often get it, conf- I often conflate it with Yaysayer's Odd Blood, uh, which has a similar sort of color palette. But, um, you know, I, I listened to Little Dark Age. I enjoyed it. But they... They, they, to me, they, they strike me as like a band that, and I, I, I appreciate what they're doing, but I don't think they're as weird as they think they are. So they're a singles band that really believes they're making albums, which I, I respect it, but um, I like the new album, you know, like uh, they just, you know, they're, they're thing. I get what they're doing. Uh, they're really strong songwriters. They have a lot of skill, a lot of craft, a lot, like they put 15 chord changes in each song. Um, but you know, I don't think it'll ever like an emotionally resonate with me, which is probably, you know, a skill issue on my end. I feel like if when I feel like they're sort of like a ween band where they have like all this like kind of 
crazy lysergic psych rock stuff um covering up the fact yeah this song is about me being doing a bunch of drugs and being like super depressed yeah you know the thing i would say you know you bring up ween and that's a natural comparison because that's another two-person band i've compared mgmt to steely dan Hmm. and i have to give credit to molly lambert because i think she was the first person to make that comparison at least that i saw in a grantland column many years ago it's probably for the self-titled record back in 2013 but with mgmt you have like these two smart alecky guys who meet at an elite college on the east coast they have a sense of humor that only they really appreciate you know and the rest of the world is maybe a little confounded by and then they start having totally unexpected commercial success like huge commercial success and they respond to that by just getting more and more perverse. And look, I know what you mean when you say, oh, they're not as weird as they think they are. But I do think that the reaction to the first record, especially on Congratulations, and even more so like on the self-titled record, because I think the there, there are catchy songs on Congratulations. MGMT, the record, is like, there's just like pure noise on that record. I mean, that's like a pretty kind of bonkers hmm. album, I think. Alien Days is a catchy song, but... That even feels like more of like a fuck you type record than Congratulations is. Um, they really operated as a band that understood that they were always going to be defined by two songs, Kids and Electric Feel. And they knew that those songs were going to probably pay the way for the rest of their lives. Like They didn't really need to make any more songs after that first record because those, those songs are so big. And they responded to that by... Acting like a band with house money, essentially. That mm. it's like it doesn't matter if our other records aren't as successful. We can just kind of pursue this psych rock pop muse that we have uh, on our other records. I have to say, having said that, their streaming numbers are like way better than certainly I expected, and probably you would expect. Like you brought up Vampire Weekend before. Like they are, I think. I think most people would say like they're the most relevant band to come out of that blog rock late 2000s era. On Spotify, they have like 6 million monthly listeners. MGMT has 15 million monthly <laughs> listeners. Even like the title track from like Little Dark Age. Great song. Has, great song. That's got like almost 600 million streams, which puts it in the neighborhood of Electric Feel, which I think has about 690 or so. So there's like a lot of people, and I think like probably a lot of young people that are in the into this band, and I, I I can totally understand why. I mean, they have this aesthetic to them, again that sort of psych pop, uh, you know, sound that. Let's say you were into Tame Impala as a teenager, like in a way, MGMT is like, the weird version. Of Tame Impala, like if you're coming, if you're coming at it from that perspective, if you're like a 22 year old that wasn't around really when Oracular Spectacular came out, um, this new record is interesting because it kind of sounds a little like Steely Dan. Like it's a soft rock record in a lot of places. Like they're really playing with different soft rock forms. There's a ton of fretless bass on this record. (laughs) You know and. it really is like them kind of playing with music that you start maybe caring about more once you get into your late 30s and early 40s. Like there's that cliche about people 
starting to get Steely Dan once they get married and have kids and live in the suburbs and they're balding and they have <laughs> gray hairs coming into their beards and now they just want to listen to Gaucho all the time. It feels like MGMT is in that era of their career. And I really like it. I mean, look, I'm one of those Steely Dan dads, so normally, so of course I would, but I don't know. It feels like a very natural evolution for them. Like, Little Dark Age was it definitely sounded like a record where they were maybe trying to recover some of the juice from the first record. It's like the straightest record they've made mm-hmm. since Oracular Spectacular. And this album is kind of them getting back into congratulations mode. You know, very catchy songs, but it doesn't seem like they're very concerned about any kind of commercial success with this record. Yeah, the, another thing that was interesting, I didn't realize that they're on mom and pop now. Uh, so they're kind of technically kind of sort of an indie band at this point. Um, but can, I, I feel like a fun little quiz game that we could do is like, is this a song? Is this a non-single from Miraculous Spectacular or not? Um, <laughs> I'm looking at the streaming numbers, and I mean, Little Dark Age. Yeah, it, there's nearly 600 million, and everything else. Like, I mean, it's it's way more than like the rest of the album combined. It's like almost like a Midnight City type outlier. But yeah, yeah but like when you die as like yeah, 136 that's million, that's like that's nothing. I mean, for that's way more still than I yeah. would have expected. Yeah. From like the fourth record from MGMT, like I would not have, I would have guessed that it would be everything on the first record, and then everything else would be like maybe ten to twenty million or mm-hmm. something. So to get into like nine figures with those kind of tracks, I mean, it's pretty surprising, and I think it does speak to their. Uh, kind of crossover appeal to younger generations. Well, I think we have to mention the like one of my favorite Travis Kelsey circa 2010 tweets where he's like electric feel. <laughs> he's he's just like throwing out hardcore to electric feel, and I think that uh, MGMT probably saw that sort of element in their crowd. I mean, I actually saw them perform at uh, the 2019 Just Like Heaven Festival, which was like the blog rock. Uh, festival where like they didn't tell anybody like I don't think they told any of the bands beforehand what it was and so like I'm sure like Grizzly Bear so wouldn't have played it but yeah just this to watch them go through kids and time to pretend I think they played uh Electric Feel and uh, kids and they were just so like yeah let's just knock it out punch the clock um, it's almost like it's almost fun to like watch them like kind of hate perform those songs you know like that that's oh, like, yeah. an element of the performance yeah, I mean, when I saw them on the Congratulations Tour, the main set... Oh, by the way, the opener for that tour, Tame Impala. Wow. It was like, like inner speaker era. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, they come out at MGMT and they did, I think, the whole album in the main set. And then the encore is Electric Feel and Kids. And... I don't think they had the band with them. I think they just played the backing track from the record and sang along. And of course, the audience went apeshit. Like the audience was sort of listless during most of the show. And the band was into that part of the show. And then, you know, the MGMT guys were not into the encore. And then you just saw, like, all these people getting up to dance for that. So it was a very funny juxtaposition there. But it does... Even that kind of reminds me of Steely Dan. It reminds me of like Steely Dan playing like a Yacht Rock bill or something. Like how Donald Fagan, I'm sure, is not into the Yacht Rock 
scene, people wearing captain's hats and all that garbage. But it's still very lucrative for them to do that sort of thing. So it's like, we don't like being associated with this, but it's also something that keeps our audience alive. Mm -hmm. So interesting yeah i think that this album just in term like in terms of its quality we we talk a lot about bands of this ilk you know with like arctic monkeys and m83 you know the bands that have been around for like 15 some odd years and are still putting out new music i think the bar this album has the clear is like will it be instantly memory hold and the ant even if it's good and i don't think the answer is yes this one's like receiving pretty good reviews which i think is kind of a makeup call for Little Dark Age not being given its due in its time. But I think this is what happens when you put out albums every five years that, you know, everything's influenced by whether or not, like, people were correct about the previous one. Yeah, I feel like with MGMT, they are constantly being memory hold, and then they get brought out of the hole <laughs> and into the light. Like, And it's because, like you said, they put out records every four or five years, so... One of their albums will come out, and I'll be like, oh, this is good. Like, this is a good band. I forgot how good these guys are. And then they just go away for a half decade. Mm-hmm. And then the next record comes out, and you're like, oh, yeah, these guys are good. I forgot that these guys are good. Like, I, I just, that just seems to be a recurring thing with them. And maybe they like it, but, you know. They, again, I could see that appealing to their sense of humor. They have a very singular and perverse sense of humor, so they might get a kick out of that. All right, well, let's pivot from a legacy indie band to possibly the next big indie band. And, of course, I'm talking about The Last Dinner Party. Uh, this is a band from England. They put out their debut record earlier this month. That record is called Prelude to Ecstasy, which, again, to bring up Steely Dan, very reminiscent of <laughs> Countdown to Ecstasy. This is like the prelude to Counting Down Ecstasy. Um, this record is getting a lot of hype, a lot of airplay on... Perhaps your favorite satellite indie station. <laughs> um, they do seem like a band that is poised, or at least the industry is trying to position them as this year's wet leg. You know, like the the British band that is composed of all women that comes out of nowhere and just wows critics, wins a lot of fans, and just immediately seems huge. And like wet leg, there are aspects of their background that make maybe some people. We won't say us. We'll just say some people mm-hmm. maybe think that they're an industry plant. Like, for instance, this band, they played their first show in November of 2021. And it's funny, like, I was looking at their Wikipedia page, and apparently they were inspired to uh, become a band because they saw Black Midi. And they were just like, oh, this is an important band, and we want to be part of their scene. And it's just funny to me to think of black midi as like the velvet underground you know like (laughs) they're already like inspiring other bands to form uh because they're so forward thinking but anyway this band they played their first show in november of 2021 they were signed to q prime management in early 2022 so let's just say two or three months later and q prime management for those who don't know they manage metallica they manage muse they're like a big-time rock management company. And again, I do not know, like, how does this kind of thing happen? I have no idea, like, how a band plays their first show and then is immediately signed to, like, one of the biggest management companies in the world. I mean, do you have any insight into this? Is, like, is one of their, like, dads, like, you know, 
in the record industry or something. I, I don't know. Or, or are they that amazing? Are they just that amazing that they got signed so quickly? I mean, maybe. I mean, yeah. when, when you look at, like, what they're coming to the table with, this is exact. Like, if they didn't exist, someone would have to invent them. And I know that's, like, kind of a cliche. And um, I think where this band is, like, their whole, like, a lot of their deal is just, like, kind of bringing uh accusations of like industry plant or whatever to the fore and acknowledging right off the bat um but yeah like i I started hearing about this band last year and um you know just like god bless the uk press you know like at a time when every single episode not every episode but like every other episode we have to talk about like some music publication dying out or like another is rock dead uh, think piece like the UK are just real true believers um, and th- this album came up in in the context of a couple of other big UK rock acts that are releasing records now like did you know that there's a hu- like a pretty hyped up uh, British band uh, getting a lot of good press right now called Crawlers um, I just love yeah. the fact they're called Crawlers like this is 1994 they're starting a beef with Manic Street Preachers um, and <laughs> Yeah, not to be confused with Creeper, who are doing, I think, more of like a new My Chemical Romance thing. But uh, yeah, there. You know, I also listened to the Declan McKenna record. There's a band called New Dad, which is uh, not to be confused with Gay Dad. That's being produced right. by Alan Mulder. Um, they 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 are just like such true believers. Yeah, they're just churning out these kind of bands. And and the last dinner party, you know, they are. British in a very classic sense and that they have this theatrical aspect to what they're doing. Theatrical in a way that like American bands typically are not. And that of course goes back to David Bowie in the early 70s and glam rock and there's just a whole lineage of very sort of over-the-top melodramatic theatrical British rock bands. Haven't been so much lately like Wet Leg I don't think really falls under that uh categorization but yeah this was a band they came out and you know the idea the concept of the band name was this and again i'm reading from the wikipedia page inspired by the idea of a huge debauched dinner party where people come together to celebrate with a hedonistic banquet Mm. and i'm just thinking about uh you know the big uh it rock band of 2023 monoskin they had a similar type thing where it's like yeah man we're bringing debauchery back to rock music but the last dinner party does that in a very sort of slick accessible package like this isn't like a sloppy dangerous rock band they make very uh catchy well-crafted synth rock songs that go down very easily and this record in general i would say is good like i i you know i've listened to it a bunch of times and i'm not bowled over by it like it, it it doesn't have i think enough trashiness for me to love it like i wish they really committed to this concept of you know we're this debaucherous british band and we're going to have questionable taste mm-hmm. in our and i don't mean that in a lyrical sense i just mean really going for it and again i'll I'll refer to a concept that you love to talk about, which is shittiness. <laughs> you love shittiness in I bands, do. and that's and that's always your thing with the 1975. Why you love them so much? You feel like there's a shittiness to them. I feel like the, the last dinner party, their their Achilles heel, perhaps, is that they're a little too tasteful. Like I wish they were a little less tasteful and more tasteless. 
But having said that, this is a well-crafted record. And like the Wet Leg record, you know, I was being a bit facetious earlier when I was talking about how quickly they got signed. I mean, I understand why they got signed. Mm-hmm. Because they it's a very commercial package. You know, an all-female band, very theatrical, really catchy songs. There's a lot of hooks there. So I get why they've had this meteoric rise. We should mention, too, that they were opening for the Rolling Stones in 2022, less than a year after their first gig. I mean, so they, again, were put on the fast track to stardom. Um, I do wonder how they'll translate in America. It seems like they are building an audience here, but it seems like American audiences are a little slower to accept this sort of theatrical type British band. Like I just think about like suede versus Oasis or like suede versus Radiohead. I mean, that's a better comparison because they came out at the same time. Like, you, right. The yeah. Song exactly. That eventually got them big. You know. <laughs> yeah. Their their dumb rock song is what got them big. You know, like in America, we gravitated to Radiohead and Creep more so than Suede, who had more of like a glam rock sensibility, and they were huge in England in 1993. Um, or yeah, Oasis versus Blur. Blur had more of like a brainier sensibility than Oasis did. So, again, I guess I'm. I'm faulting the last dinner party for not being dumb enough. I keep <laughs> saying this in different ways. I yeah. do think they could stand to be a little dumber. And I think they'd be better if they were just a little bit dumber. But I don't know. I like this record. I can't hate on it. I mean, do you, what do you think of this record? Yeah, my my assumption based on like the narrative around it and the appearance was that, I don't know, this sounds like Florence the Machine fronting a late period Arctic Monkeys record, which is kind of what it is. Um, <laughs> and I think that there's something that kind of, you know, bugs me. It, it reminds me of a lot of like TV shows and movies now where they kind of try to get ahead of the backlash where they cheekily acknowledge like, oh, you're going to say we're industry plants or, hey, nice rock tropes. It would be a shame if someone subverted them. But it does feel, you know, kind of a little safe with it, um, a little too self-conscious. Uh, and more to the point, like it's gotten nothing as far as I've seen except praise so it feels like it's falling a little bit flat but you know it's fine i don't mind it uh would i reach for it probably not but i love the fact that we are like you know time is a flat circle we are getting back to the like the mid 90s conversations of can this british hype band break america Um, and i i I like that yeah me too i'm I'm all for it (laughs) i find that reassuring and i i like that the british press is still taking these bands from out of nowhere and just trying to build them up into the you know the biggest band in the world. I it, it like you said we're in a period of flux uh, to say the least with the music media here in America. Uh so to know that that's still happening in England it's like okay. It's not totally disappearing. We, we still have some things uh that uh, exist from like the 20th century and early 21st century. So yeah, last dinner party. Best of luck to you. Hope you keep growing your audience. Um, Let's get to our mailbag segment. Thank you all for writing in and uh, sending us emails. It's always great to hear from our listeners. If you can hit us up uh, with some great questions, we always love to mix it up with you guys. So, you know, give us some good conversation topics. We're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. We've got a couple emails this week, so let's... Let's move through them quick here. What's, do you want to read our first email? Yeah, absolutely. I love this question. So uh, this comes to us from Johnny from Vermont. 
uh, which Johnny from Vermont. It sounds like a Lemonhead song, so I'm glad that this is actually about the Lemonhead. So can we uh, can we just call him Johnny Vermont? <laughs> That's great. We'll call, you're Johnny Vermont. Yeah, Johnny from, from Vermont. As someone born in 1997, oh my gosh. Okay, so as someone born in 1997 and coming to that stuff after the fact, I admire and love a lot of it, but Ray stands above the pack to me. They're referring to It's a Shame About Ray, largely considered the best uh, Lemonheads record. How do you guys feel about the Lemonheads? To me, they're more timeless than a lot of major bands of that era, but seem lost in a no-man's land between the alt-radio stars like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and and indie darlings like Pavement and Guided by Voices. How are they perceived then, and how do you feel now? Was Evan Dando just too hot? So Johnny from Vermont uh, has put me onto the fact that apparently they're releasing a new record, um, you know, a Lemonheads record, not an Evan Dando solo joint. So yeah, I don't think we've talked much about this band uh, on the cast. So what do you? Th- I mean, I'm dying to hear what you think. I know what I think. <laughs> well, didn't they tour recently with like Jawbreaker? Death- with Jawbreaker, yeah, they, and they it. beefed and- with them too. <laughs> right. And and I remember at the time feeling like that was a weird pairing in my mind. And of course, I was thinking of the Lemonheads in their mid 90s guys, less so in like their late 80s, early 90s guys, because they really were more of like a punk band early on. And then they evolved into this kind of country tinged alt rock band, like with the, It's a Shame About Ray and then Come On Feel the Lemonheads. Um you know, for me, like, those are the two albums I, I know the most. It's a Shame About Ray and Come On Feel the Lemonheads. It's a Shame About Ray in particular, I think, is, like, a great record. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Johnny Vermont here nails where they fall. I I do think that there is a no man's land between, like, the big alt-rock bands of the 90s, like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Stone Temple Pilots, and then the indie rock darlings, Pavement, GBV, Built the Spill... Neutral Milk Hotel. And, uh, you know, Lemonheads were a band that were kind of successful, but, like, they never really broke through. And then Evan Dando had this sort of dicey reputation at the time, you know, hanging out with Courtney Love, and he had, you know, some drug issues, and he did maybe seem like a pretty boy to some people. He was almost too handsome to be <laughs> that good of a, of a songwriter, you know, as weird as that is to say. Like, Tom Petty had a quote about that once, in Rolling Stone, someone asked him because they th- that sitcom Wings made a joke about Tom Petty being ugly. <laughs> Wings cast, Tom, yeah. It was uh, and uh, and Tom Petty said something like, "You know, you can be too handsome sometimes." Uh, and I think that was true of Evan Dando. Like people just couldn't, you know, rationalize this model-looking guy with these beautiful sad sack folk rock songs that he was writing in the mid '90s. Um, I don't know, like, Johnny Vermont didn't ask us to yay or nay the Lemonheads. I mean, do we just want to yay or nay them? I think I, that I was implied. Okay, because like, I, I would definitely yay them, even though, again, I, I don't go deep in their catalog. But it's a shame about Ray. Definitely a great 90s rock record. No question about it. And come on, feel the Lemonheads. <laughs> Not quite as strong, but that's a good record, too. Yeah, I, I've thought about this a lot because I reviewed a come on, feel the Lemonheads deluxe reissue last year, which... For people like us who were, you know, buying CDs in 1997 as opposed to being born, the like the idea of paying 40 bucks for a deluxe version of that album is just so hysterical because you could you could literally not give that album away in 1996. Like every UCD store had at least three copies, and it was roundly acknowledged of being like 30 percent filler. But 
Yeah. And it's like 15 songs long, isn't it? It's I mean, it's so like a long, long record. And there's like a 15 minute like noise jam, like Rick James is on there. Like it is, it is like <laughs> total, it is total filler, uh, but some great songs. And I think you're, you're, you're right in that, um, you could see it as a no man's land, but I think for like a while there was this possibility that Evan Dando was going to be this Kurt Cobain like emissary, like what Kurt Cobain was like for like Olympia. Um, you know, Evan Dando was going to be for like Massachusetts because their early records were like Dinosaur Junior ripoffs. Um, and you know, they're like one step removed from you know Mission of Burma or you know the Blake Babies bands like that. But you know, for someone my age who had nobody to guide them, I would see them as a band who was along the same lines as like I don't know Sponge. Um, but yeah, Shame About Ray, great record and very very not I don't know forward thinking is the right word, but it did predict what was happening a lot. Uh, you know, on Run for Cover or like Philadelphia labels like Lamo, where it's there's some you know there's some college rock and maybe a little grungy all pop but like some country leanings as well and you could hear uh you know what was happening what was going to happen 20 years later and i think the interesting thing to think about with the lemonheads is how because evan dando was so hot that he like the lemonheads were like the rare male band that was subject to a lot of the same standards as you know, female fronted rock bands from that era where it was fair game to talk about like Evan Dando's drug habits or like who he was, who he was dating. And, um, yeah, it, it was a weird, like, you know, shoes on the other foot sort of thing. But, um, look, I mean, Evan, Evan Dando's had a rough go. I hope he finds some peace. Uh, but yeah, otherwise a car button cloth has uh, some good songs as well. That well, was, you know what? I think he has found some peace because he's following me on Twitter. Right now. So he just he just started following me recently. So I think I think this is him learning how to center himself, reading my tweets. Hopefully, I can do my part. Have another. It's a shame about Ray resurgence here in the 2020s. Um, I'll read our second email. This this comes from Devin in Northwest Connecticut. And then he says the nice part. Huh. I thought all Connecticut was nice. Is there a bad part? Oh, that is not at all true. Oh, really? I mean, Willimantic, where uh, the world is a beautiful place, and I'm no longer afraid to die originally from, that's like known as heroin town. Oh, man. Okay. And, yeah. And, yeah. Not There's there's a lot of bad parts of Connecticut. <laughs> so they mean heroin town in a bad way? <laughs> yes. Okay. Very, uh, very much, though. <laughs> the, the, bad, the bad meaning of that. Okay, so Devin... From the good part of Connecticut. He says, hey guys, in honor of Goose introducing their new drummer and releasing new music. Connecticut band, by the way. Goose. Yes. Uh, and then he, Devin says, I'm expecting to hear about Ted Tapes 2024 and Recommendation Corner, Stephen. I haven't listened to it yet. I got to dig into that. Ted Tapes 2024. Yeah, we did talk about the new drummer and Goose and the... I don't want to say shady, but there was some controversy with them getting... You know, their, their old drummer left... Then uh, at Kind, they have two drummers, so they got a sec. They got a new second drummer, but Ben was the original drummer. Anyway, we don't need to get into that right now. That's a whole soap opera. Uh, what band personnel changes had the best and worst effects on their band, and which were your most and least favorite changes? A good question here about lineup changes. Which were improvements or upgrades, and which were downgrades? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we and I, I'm I'm surprised you are. We're not talking about goose or geese, you know. But um, I'm I'm hoping that you come with more positive vibes than I do, or at least you know, band changes that occurred within you know 
prior to uh, 1998. But, um, you know, I tend to think of like personnel changes uh, along the lines of like ones that kind of ended the band as we knew them. For example, I think Carlos D. Um, you know, I, we could argue that Interpol was losing steam by the time he left the band. But like once he did leave, that just closed off their, you know, for lack of a better term, shittiness era. Uh, that kind of danger and edge. And, you know, they, they replaced him, I think, with a guy from Secret Machines who, look, that's like one band with as big of a rhythm section as Interpol. But you could just tell they were like a legacy band from that point forward. Um, similarly with uh, Death Cab and Chris Walla. Now, Chris Walla was a guitarist and also the producer. But once he left the band, uh, he was replaced by a guy, Dave Depper, and that effectively changed Death Cab into, like, a band that appears on K-Rock. And also, you know, Dave Depper is a guy who's, like, Ben Gibbard's marathon buddy, and, you know, like, after day, after Ben Gibbard got sober. And we can also make an entire episode of the bands that, like, got way worse once they got sober. Uh, and a, a kind of a shitty topic, but, you know, it's this is rock music, but... I think of like the positive personnel changes as like the really weird ones, like Johnny Marr joining Modest Mouse. Uh, same with a Smashing Pumpkins on with Tommy Lee on the drums. This is our second Tommy Lee reference uh, in this episode. But I think the most impactful, you know, as far as modern bands is Cloud Nothings bringing in Jason Garrett. like the best drummer, in my opinion, of like the past 20 years in rock music. Uh, listen to the self-titled and then listen to Attack on Memory. This is a great uh, lesson for a lot of the bedroom bands that are happening right now. Like, get a real drummer. Like, get a real drummer. You'll be absolutely amazed what you're able to accomplish. And so I, I think those are the ones that come up. But I, I guarantee you're going to think of, like, some Hall of Fame type shit. Well, it's funny how changing the drummer has really helped a lot of bands. And maybe, you know, if you're a fan of Goose, you can take this to heart. <laughs> I mean, let's start with the Beatles. You know, they have Pete Best on the drums for a long time, and then along comes Ringo Starr, and they just shoot to superstardom almost immediately. I mean, that's like the definitive All example Ringo. of that. All Ringo. Uh, but then you got like Neil Pert in Rush. You know, they got some other guy playing drums on the first record. Neil Pert comes in. Not only is he like one of the all-time great drummers, he's also like, hey man, I read Ayn Rand. I uh, write lyrics. I'll write all of our lyrics. So you got a lyricist and a drummer coming in, Neil Peart. Uh, there's a little guy named Dave Grohl coming into uh, Nirvana. Kind of a big deal. You know, he comes in, joins for Nevermind, and they just are transformed and they become the biggest band in the world. Uh, Topper Heaton in The Clash comes in on the second record. He's an amazing drummer. Takes them to the next level. Uh, I'm also going to throw in Matt Cameron for Pearl Jam. Uh, I think you could make a case that Pearl Jam might have broken up if Matt Cameron hadn't come in. I mean, he was like this stabilizing uh, presence in that band, and he's the longest tenured drummer now. I mean, they they went through like tons of drummers in the 90s, and now Matt Cameron's been in the band for like 25 years, and they're just a touring machine with him in the band. So, yeah, I think drummers, for, for whatever reason... They just make a big difference, and it can transform your band from, like, a good band into a great band. It's, like, maybe the most underrated uh, thing, uh, you know, like, sort of like a, like the little, like, magic potion or, 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 or pixie dust that you can sprinkle on a band to mm -hmm. make them really great is if you just bring in a powerhouse drummer. 
Well, I think with Interpol, I mentioned like Carlos D leaving. Um, their original drummer was from uh, like the classic screamo band Seisha, um, but then they got replaced by Sam Fogarino, who was like ten years older than the rest of them, and just completely transformed them. Uh, shout out to the For Your Health song. Hey, did you know that the drummer from Seisha was in Interpol? now reach the part of the episode that we call recommendation corner where ian and i talk about something that we're into this week ian why don't you go first all right so on a sad note it looks to me like complex magazine is you know following the footsteps of so many other publications uh where it's being just kind of tossed back and forth through private equity uh complex gave us some of the best some of my favorite hip-hop lists of all time including cameron's 10 most ignorant moments and uh, Sypha sounds, uh, listing the 75 best tunnel bangers. Um, I reference that list all the time. So, you know, it just sucks to see a, you know, a long-term like successful publication shut down. So my heart goes out to the people there, but, uh, as far as what I'd recommend musically, um, so there was, there's a band called curling who they're kind of split between Berkeley and Japan and they released an album in 2023 called No Guitar, um, which is kind of like a Japanese translation. Uh, but uh, it's being deluxe reissued um, now. So you can hear the album now and then you get a deluxe edition. And they describe themselves as uh, Cap and Jazz meets Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Um, I <laughs> wow. don't know if I would call... But yeah, listen to the first song. To me, it sounds like... like Midwest emo being played with like 12 string Rickenbackers and maybe fronted by Matthew Sweet on vocals. Um, kind of fascinating that this album wasn't discovered earlier. And believe me, this is like my fault because this is way up my alley. Um, but yeah, it's you can hear it now. You can go to Bandcamp and uh, check out No Guitar. But there's a deluxe edition that's coming out, uh, I believe, March 1st. But um, yeah, just go ahead and check it out now. It's out there. So curling, No Guitar. There's actually plenty of guitar on it. That's my recommendation this week. So I want to talk about an album called Imitation of War, and it's from a band called Itasca, I-T-A-S-C-A. This is a project of a singer-songwriter named Kayla Cohen. No relation. No relation to Ian. This album came out a few weeks ago, and it's been really taking over my life lately, especially at dusk. I love playing this album at dusk. It has such a great sun-going-down type vibe to it. And the way I would describe it is, like, the guitar tones to me remind me a lot of my favorite Joni Mitchell record, Hajira, from 1976. That kind of very airy, wiry, somewhat jazzy type guitar sound that that record has. I just feel like it's so unique to that album. And at times, this album reminds me of that. I think Cohen's vocals, too, are a little Joni-esque from that period, where Joni's singing in, like, her lower register. Uh, Kayla Cohen has I think a similar vocal quality Uh, but it takes that Hajira blueprint and it just kind of blows it out a little bit into these just beautiful low-key guitar jams Um, on the show I've talked about the band Rose City Band Uh, and I, I feel like they have some of that Rose City Band element to what they're doing as well like that more laid back side to the Grateful Dead maybe uh, in the guitar jams on this record really great record great songs and again just a really entrancing guitar sound that 
I just feel like goes perfect at the end of the day. So again, the album's called Imitation of War. The band is called Itasca. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm sure I'm not. It's spelled again I-T-A-S-C-A. Really good record. It wasn't a Jero like one with fretless bass as well. Yeah, Jacko Pistorius plays on that. Yeah, we're, 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 this is fretless bass cast. Love fretless bass. You know, Jeff Amet too. Big oh, component yeah. of the fretless bass in the 90s. <laughs> um, thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news, reviews, and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.